prominent, very prominent actually, 19th century New Testament scholar named Constantine von Tischendorf. Constantine von Tischendorf. He was German. He evokes the language of our text this morning when he speaks of a trip that he made to St. Catherine's Monastery. St. Catherine's Monastery is in the Sinai Peninsula and it's at the foot of what many believe to be Mount Sinai. Tischendorf says this. He says, It was at the foot of Mount Sinai in the convent of St. Catherine that I discovered the pearl of all my researches. In visiting the library of the monastery in the month of May 1844, I perceived in the middle of the great hall a large, wide basket full of old parchments. And the librarian told me that two heaps of papers like these, molded by time, had already been committed to the flames. He continues, he says, What was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers a considerable number of sheets of a copy of the Old Testament in Greek? The Old Testament was copied into Greek about 200 B.C. And and Tischendorf says, Which seemed to me to be one of the most ancient I had ever seen. Scholars of this status of Tischendorf can tell just by looking at the script. Oh, that's, that Hebrew is from this century and not that century. Or that's 9th century Greek and not 5th century Greek. He knew right away these were old copies of the Old Testament. So he says, he continues, he says, The authorities of the convent allowed me to possess myself a third of these parchments, about 43 sheets, all the more readily since they were just destined for the flames. They were using them to heat the place. He says, but I couldn't get them to yield up the remainder. And then he explains quite humorously why they wouldn't give him the rest of the parchments. He says, the too lively satisfaction which I had displayed had aroused their suspicions as to the value of these manuscripts. So he says, I got some of them. I got them to give me some, but I was too excited. So they knew something was up. He goes, I went back to my room, I transcribed a page of the text of Isaiah and a page of Jeremiah, and I enjoined the monks to take religious care of all such remains that might fall their way. In other words, don't throw this stuff in the fire if you find any more of it around here. So what's interesting, and one of these great little quirks of uh, Bible history, if you will, is 15 years later, Tischendorf returns to St. Catherine's convent. And he tells of another incident with the steward of the monastery. He says, he took down from the corner of the room a bulky kind of volume wrapped in a red cloth, and he laid it before me. I unrolled the cover and discovered to my surprise not only those fragments which I had seen 15 years before, he says, he says, but other parts of the Old Testament and a complete New Testament in Greek and a couple of other writings. So he says, full of joy, he says, this time I had the self-command to conceal my joy. (laughs) I asked, he says, as if in a careless way, "Um, can I I take a look at these? So he says he, he takes them to his sleeping chamber, and they give them to him. 
And then he says this, There by myself I could give way to the transport of joy which I felt. I knew I had in my hand the most precious biblical treasure in existence, a document whose age and importance exceeded all the manuscripts I had examined in my 20 years of research on the subject. And he goes on, he says, I can't, I I must confess, he says, I can't recall all the emotions of that exciting moment, he says, to have such a diamond in my possession. And then he says, though my lamp was dim and the night was cold, I sat down at once and began transcribing. What Tischendorf had discovered is what we today call the Codex Sinaiticus named after Mount Sinai. It is the most ancient set of New Testament manuscripts in the world. It is what all those NIV Bibles in your pew are based on. That set of manuscripts. And his description of the first night in his room with those manuscripts, where he feels like it would almost be sacrilegious to sleep, Right, if you're a book lover, this story might resonate with you some, right? Sometimes Amazon sends you something, and it would be sacrilegious to sleep that night. You just have to start. He's got this stuff, and he says, I'm not, I'm not going to sleep. I have a dim lamp, the night's cold, but I'm not sleeping. He starts transcribing. He says, the sheer transport of joy which he feels upon his discovery. And that is a vivid picture of what the two characters in our text this morning feel upon discovering the kingdom of God. It's precisely that emotion of discovery and of the sense of the, the, uh, the wealth of what's been discovered, the uniqueness, the rarity of what's been discovered. So we have two very short parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl. The hidden treasure and the pearl. So in the first parable, beginning in verse 44, we're told the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. So the kingdom is likened to a treasure in the first parable. It's likened to a pearl of great value in the second. And this makes one thing very clear. That the kingdom of God, the civilization of God, the society or the order of God, is of inestimable wealth. Finding it is like every child's fantasy of finding buried treasure. And buried treasure was not at all uncommon in Palestine. Finding it was rare. But you have to recall, this was a time before there was banking, right, or any kind of sophisticated safes or locks. It was a land subject to wars and invasions, And people would, reasonably, they would hide their valuables, usually in a jar or in a chest, underground or in some secret place. About a hundred years after Tischendorf, now moving forward to about the middle of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they were found in a series of caves by Bedouin shepherds, just wandering into the caves. And one famous discovery among the Dead Sea Scrolls is a scroll called the Copper Scroll. And on the Copper Scroll, there's a list of various treasures. 
and their hiding places. Which, by the way, scholars are working hard and still are a generation later to decipher and to try and figure out the directions because they're encoded. But the copper scroll clearly says there's treasure here, there's some stuff buried here, there's more stuff buried there. Now, we've been very unsuccessful at finding this stuff. But it was common to bury this stuff. Now, the fact that the kingdom of God can be discovered, in this case, by accident almost, without looking for it, Right? The fact that it can be in the second parable about the pearl, it can be you know, just found by a merchant. Or it could be hidden in a field. This tells us, like we saw last week, that the kingdom is not going to come. The kingdom of God does not come according to much Jewish expectation. The kingdom comes in lowly humiliation. The sheer ordinariness of the servant of the Lord, of the Son of Man. Just stuff you stumble upon in the backyard. And so the man, he's not even seeking it. He doesn't even know it existed. He finds the treasure hidden in the field. He doesn't run off with it. He actually covers it up, and then in his joy he goes back, he sells everything he has, and he buys the field. Some people have actually questioned his ethics. They said the treasure should rightly belong to the owner of the field. And others have said, no, 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 no. They can cite rabbinical law on finding treasures. And they defend the man as being perfectly within his rights. To not tell anyone and go, then go buy the field. Now, both of these kinds of views are a way of overreading the parable. And this is a constant danger you see in the parables. The danger is this, attempting to find significance in all these little details which divert you from the overall thrust of the parable. The parable is simply not concerned with the ethics of this man's action. And it's almost certainly viewing him innocently. The concern is with the response to the find. Right? And thus the, the concern here is with our response, your response and my response, to the stunning surprise of the treasure of the kingdom of God which has come in Jesus Christ. A kingdom which should never cease to evoke some sense of wonder. You can never settle down with this kingdom. So the man sells everything he has, he buys the field. And he becomes the rightful owner of the treasure. There's a second way that this parable, by the way, is overread. Some commentators, they, they don't want to leave the impression that we can buy, we can purchase the kingdom. And so you'll find people will say that Jesus is the man who pays the full price. He gives up everything he has to purchase the treasure, and the treasure is the church. This is what happens when people see their favorite doctrine in every Bible verse. The parable is about our response to the kingdom, not about what Jesus has done to establish the kingdom. And so this is the barometer for our hearts and our minds and our souls this morning. What does the kingdom of God, its announcement, its presence, what does it evoke in you? Yawns? Indifference? 
Passion what? The text is asking us about what the kingdom of God evokes. So let's look at this man's response. He sells everything he has to buy the field. Now here, some caution is called for. The the rich young ruler who Jesus met, he was called to sell everything he had and follow Jesus. For him, there was no way to enter the kingdom until the stranglehold of his wealth was shattered. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus gave up half his wealth and Jesus said salvation had come to his house. And in the parable of the talents, the disciples keep their wealth and they invest it. And the Lord praises them for it. So there's no uniform, one-size-fits-all approach to how much wealth we have to give up to be Jesus' disciples. It would be wrong to say, well, the man sold everything he had and bought the field. Therefore, you should sell everything you have. On the other hand, we shouldn't miss the sting of the text. Jesus tells these stories with a certain bite. He tells it in the most radical way possible to provoke us. To realize that no thing or things, no thing or things can stand in the way of a wholehearted commitment to the kingdom of God. Nothing can be allowed in between. Seek first this kingdom, all the other stuff will be added. I mean, think about how the disciples would hear this, telling the parable in this way. It would resonate with them, right? Because they had left everything. Their businesses, their homes, their families, their livelihoods to follow Jesus. So the the parable presents a kind of searching question. What have we or what are we willing to part with for the kingdom? Because the stuff we have is not our stuff. We're stewards. But we don't talk or act like stewards. It's our house, our car. It's all in the pronouns. (laughs) Our computer, our stuff. And all of it's a potential threat. There's There's a wonderful old blues song which says there's too much stuff, there's just too much stuff. It'll hang you up dealing with too much stuff. I'll resist the temptation to sing it. <laughs> but, the, but the point is clear. We don't get rid of stuff easily. We're stuff accumulators. Stuff magnets. Nobody puts a subtraction on their house. For the sake of the king. Hey, Joe, what are all the construction guys doing at your house? Oh, we're taking a few rooms off. We're putting a subtraction on. We're subtracting for the sake of the kingdom. We're going to use the the heating and utility savings to give to the kingdom. And nobody does that. Nobody puts a subtraction on their house. So the text doesn't call us to sell everything, but it does call us to to repent, to change our mind about our relationship to our stuff, to sit lightly with the stuff, 
if for no other reason that it's not your stuff. Yeah, the Puritan, the great Puritan, Philip Brooks, said that we should look at our stuff. And he, he here he says our good stuff, our lovely stuff, the stuff we cherish. We should look at our stuff as it, in the same fashion that we will look at it 20 minutes before we die. All that valuable stuff you like, you know, the car, the snowmobile, the boat, the, the iPad. Esteem it now the same way you will esteem it 20 minutes before you are about to leave the world. Because then nobody's going to say, you know, I wish I had bought a better brand of snowmobile. <laughs> and not invested so heavily in the kingdom of God. So the parable cuts here, but, I, but, I, but that is re- this is not really the fundamental thing about the parable. The, the, the more significant thing, as difficult as it is to, for us to conceive of parting with our stuff, the more significant thing here is that in these parables, Jesus is not, he is not asking for a sacrifice. He's not. In fact, I'll put it more accurately, he's not asking for an irrational transaction. The action of the man in the parable and the pearl merchant in the next parable, they're both utterly reasonable actions. These people are not fanatics. In fact, they're being economically shrewd, aren't they? I mean, both the treasure and the pearl are more valuable than anything they own. I mean, Jesus doesn't think this is economically complicated. There's a deep rationality about these responses to the kingdom of God. This is the point Jesus is driving at. The kingdom is of infinite value. To think of it otherwise... To think, oh, gee, I don't know. I've got an iPad. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm torn between my stuff and the kingdom. Right? That's myopic. That's blindness. Right? If you found some sort of hidden treasure worth millions of dollars, and the only way you could, per- you know, the only way you come to own it is to sell your two hundred thousand dollar or hundred thousand dollar house, who would be torn about the decision? The parable doesn't think this is like some difficult, tough decision. If the Lord were to call you to sell everything and become a missionary to Africa tomorrow, it would be a boon to you. It would actually be an upgrade in real, indestructible wealth. Our problem is we have a conception of wealth which is non-eschatological. It's purely limited to this age. But if you have the biblical conception of wealth, well then, these sorts of actions are the height of sober, rational behavior. Nothing compares to the value of the kingdom. It's It's worth giving away everything you possess or whatever it takes to possess it. In fact, we're told in the second half of verse 44, it was a sheer joy for the man to sell everything. I mean, Tischendorf 
would have gladly sold his whole substantial library for a copy, one copy of Codex Sinaiticus, which, by the way, you can view today in, uh, in London. I forget the name of the library. In, in maybe the British Library in London. But that's where this Codex Sinaiticus was. But Tischendorf would have sold everything he had for it, and he'd have been a much wealthier man. So the second parable here is it's really something of a twin, but it's not an identical twin, so I'm, I'm going to deal with it very briefly. In verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Notice in the first parable, you have a man who's not seeking. Here we have one who is seeking. The kingdom comes in God's good providence to those who don't care at all about it. And it comes to those who look long and hard for the truth. And it's inscrutable. How and when and why. And yet neither parable places any emphasis on these men or their piety. The kingdom comes in both cases as a surprising gift. Now here there's no possible ethical question. The merchant is doing what merchants lawfully do. He's in search of fine pearls. Pearls which in that day you'd find in the Red Sea or in the Indian Ocean or the Persian Gulf. They were perhaps the most expensive things in existence, the most valuable items in existence. And he finds one, verse 46, one pearl of great price. This is the pearl of great value, the kingdom of God. And so like the man in the first parable, he sells all he had, he buys the pearl. So both men are now richer by far because they've rightly evaluated the kingdom. So there's really sort of two things going on here in these simple parables. Do we rightly evaluate the kingdom? Do we esteem it as the most valuable reality in the cosmos? And the test for asking us if we do this well is, do we rightly evaluate our stuff in light of the kingdom? Now Jesus is saying to us, don't hedge your bets here. Don't hedge your bets on the kingdom of God. That's what the people in the third class of the parable of the sower did. Right? They wanted the kingdom of God and their wealth. And eventually the cares of the world choked out the kingdom. They ended up with neither one. Neither one. So our evaluation, the way we evaluate things, should be that of the Apostle Paul, right, who said, I, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. I counted it as rubbish that I might have the surpassing worth. Paul uses words of value, surpassing value, or the greater worth of Christ and his kingdom. And for Paul, just like the man in the parable, this was a joyful exchange. I mean, how could it not be? Right, because Jesus says... Whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for the kingdom is going to save it. These parables are about the paradox of the kingdom. So Jesus is saying to us, do you know what me standing in front of you means? That's essentially what Jesus is saying. I bring the kingdom. Do you know what time it is? It's the time of the kingdom. It's the day of salvation. 
And so, evaluate it, Riley. This means with great joy, we must celebrate and we must participate in this kingdom at any cost. Because the value of the kingdom is so great. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen.